At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Many of us often wonder if going to church is worth it. But what if we told you God has a beautiful design for the church that very much includes you? The book of 1 Timothy speaks to these truths. And if each of us submits to them, our church will function as the loving family God intends. Join us this week as we look at the answers to the question, Church, why bother? If you would please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. As you're turning there, just a couple of things. Pastor Chris is spending his morning with the Farmington Hills Church family. So please be in prayer for him along with all of our campuses as we proclaim the word of God together. And it's in these times where we, as we open up the word, we want to ask God. I often pray it whenever I preach. We want to ask him for eyes to see and ears to hear. That all the things that we brought into the room this morning uh, that, that could be distractions for us, we would set those aside and understand what it is that he is speaking to us in these moments for his glory, for our change, so that we might leave this place empowered and equipped and ready to serve him with everything that we have. As you're turning there, let me begin this way. Most Americans pray most Americans do what we just did together here, about 80% depending on which survey you read. But let's ask a few questions about that prayer. What do we pray about? And who do we pray with? You probably won't be surprised to know that most people pray about themselves and by themselves. That's not all that shocking and it's not all that bad either. It makes sense that if prayer is ultimately a conversation with God and if we are called to pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, which means we are encouraged to keep the conversation with God going, and if we have the self-awareness to know that we are desperate for God's presence and help, then most of our prayers will take place in our heads and will be centered on whatever it is that we're experiencing or walking through in that particular moment. So before we get into corporate prayer, communal prayer, prayer when we're together in the church, which is what this text is about, I want to first remind you that maybe the very best thing that you can do today is have more of that ongoing conversation with God or perhaps restart that conversation with God. That regardless of how far away from him you think you are, regardless of how long it's been, Regardless of what fills your heart and mind right now, that he is inviting you into a conversation with him and he will hear your prayers. We find this pattern throughout scripture. We notice it certainly in the book of Psalms, a collection of songs and prayers, so many of them that are personal in nature, that use personal pronouns, talking about me and I. And so, of course, we're given permission that God in, desires this type of prayer from us. If I, I could just scan a few of these for you this morning, it, it, it doesn't take long to find them. Psalm chapter 3, verse 1 says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Psalm 4, verse 1, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Psalm 5, 1, give ear to my words, O Lord. Psalm 6, 1, O Lord, rebuke me, not in your anger. Psalm 7, 1, O Lord, my God, in you do I take ref refuge. Psalm 9, 1, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Six of the first 10 Psalms, we, we can go to these and, and see that they're praying for themselves. 
We can go to some of the most famous Psalms. Psalm 18, I love you, Lord. Oh, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Or Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Here's the thing, though. Even though we all read these as an individual songs or prayers, that does not make them individualistic. The disposition of individualism, which is all over our culture, is that a person speaks and acts exclusively for themselves with no consideration for other people. That is not the nature and tone that we find in God's word. It's usually very easy to see in the text that the person who is praying is deeply aware of how they are connected to the whole of God's people. But here's the issue. Even if we are praying, and I believe it's certainly my conviction that in the church, there's so many of us that might struggle with that rhythm. So many of us that need to be challenged back into that rhythm. Even if we are praying, I don't think most people who claim to be followers of Jesus today pray with a deep sense of their spiritual community in mind. The reality is that the forces of our individualistic culture have deeply influenced the way we pray and even what we pray about. So let's be clear as we get started. There is absolutely nothing wrong with praying to ourselves about ourselves. But let's also recognize that the whole personal faith thing causes us to neglect, maybe even abandon, God's design for his church to pray together for all people. I found it really sad, but also really insightful to learn from a cultural study that more people have prayed for their sports team, their favorite sports team, 13%. Pray for their favorite sports team. If the Lions had been playing this weekend, there's a lot of prayers that might have been offered up on their behalf. More people pray for their sports team than for the men and women leading the country, 12%. Or even maybe more surprising, more people... Well, I'll put it this way. 20% of people, according to this particular survey, pray for the lost in the world. That the gospel would go forth to the lost in the world. 20%, one out of five. 21% of people pray that they would win the lottery. Offering prayers as a spiritual family for, yes, our spiritual family, but also for the entire world is not just something we do, it's part of who we are. At least this is what Paul believed as he gives Timothy a list of specific instructions on how to lead out the worship gatherings of a church that Timothy pastored in Ephesus, that is in modern day Turkey. The list starts in chapter two of 1 Timothy where Paul says to his apprentice, his pupil, Timothy, his Padawan, Timothy, the first thing you must do as you guard the gospel, as you fight to overcome anyone whose teaching takes people away from the gospel. That's what he presented in chapter one. That's what they were dealing with. I would argue that's still what the church is dealing with. And he says, the very first thing you must do is to remember that when we gather together, we pray. When we gather, we pray. So why bother? Why bother? That's the title of the series. Why bother with praying together when we can pray on our own? Maybe moments like we just had in our service are uncomfortable for you, or they're not normative for you, and, and, and it's not something you necessarily want to do out loud or with, with other people. And so, so that keeps you from stepping into that moment. Why, why bother then? Why bother with exposing ourselves to feelings of inadequacy? 
as we listen to other men and women eloquently go on and on and on in their passionate prayers? Why bother with praying in community for the whole world when it feels like your world is completely falling apart? Well, we find an answer. And the Bible gives us many answers. The simplest answer is that we pray together because God commands it and because God responds to it. God delights in answering our individual prayers and our corporate prayers. There is both uniqueness and power in praying alone, and there is uniqueness and power in praying together. It's not an either or. So let's get to the big picture here for a second. The big picture is it's a mystery of how God's global plan, around the world plan of redemption works itself out. We, we know God is sovereign over all things. That means he's in control. And for some of us in the room, if you're a little bit like me, sometimes there's areas of your life where you're a little bit of a control freak. It's kind of hard to come to that realization that the, the whole I'm in control thing is one of those dumb things that we think we have. Like none of us are really in control of anything in so many ways. You have no control. Only God knows the outcome of all things. Only God hears the whispers of our hearts before the thoughts are even formed in our brains. And he has already determined all that will be for his glory. And yet God responds to our prayers in real, tangible, sometimes even real-time ways. Well, how does... How this all works out, it's, it's, it's more than I can really ever figure out, but both can be true. God has already determined the outcome, and God responds to our prayers. There are so many examples of this in the scripture. Let me just share one with you this morning. After the death of Christ, after the resurrection of Christ, after the ascension of Christ, when he returned to heaven in Acts chapter 1, verse 12, Luke writes for us, then they, the disciples, returned to Jerusalem. And when they had entered, that is the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. What happened? As they devoted themselves to prayer, what happened? God responded. The Holy Spirit was sent on a day called Pentecost, and that was the birth of the church. The church prays, God responds. That's the pattern. The church prays, God responds. The church prays, say it with me, and God responds. That's what he does. So when we gather, what do we do? When we gather, we pray. So when we gather, say it with me, we pray. We need to pray. We need to be people of prayer. Now, Paul answers another significant question for us. He says, what should the church pray for then? And we find three responses in these first seven verses. Here's the first. He says, church, when you get together and you pray, pray for all people. Pray for all people. Look at verse one. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all People, if you don't mind writing in your scripture, circle all people. First of all, everybody say first of all. First of all. He's basically saying above all. 
more than anything else. How do we guard the gospel? How do we celebrate the gospel? How do we fight for the gospel? More than anything else, we, the people, the way we do this is we start with prayer. We start with prayer. This isn't simply an encouragement. He's pleading, he's urging. It carries the weight of a command. And then he uses four words for prayer. He says, first, with supplications. Supplications has to do with passionately asking. It's like humbly begging God for whatever unique request that you're bringing before him, offering supplication. Prayers is, of course, a general term. It's asking for God's blessing and care for whoever it is that we're praying for. Intercessions carries the image of coming before a king and appealing for the king's favor on behalf of someone else. You're making intercessory prayer for them, that God would give his favor to them. Intercessions. And thanksgivings means expressing gratitude for the person that we're praying for. The point is actually not the difference between these types of prayers. The real point is that all kinds of prayers should be offered up by the church for all kinds of people. Our prayers are to be as unlimited and unconditional as God's grace. Paul uses the same phrase, all people, in chapter 4, verse 10, to say that God is the Savior of all people. So we pray for everyone Because God, and in the first century, this was the context, because God and not Caesar is the savior of all, the rescuer of all. And that means that prayer is not elitist. It is not just for a chosen few. Prayer is not exclusive. It is not nationalistic. It is not racist. It is not selective. There is no category of people that are left off this list. All humanity is in the circle It's not that we're supposed to pray for all 8 billion people on planet earth by name. It's that no group, no classification, no crowd is excluded. Why? Well, look down at verse 4 for a quick second. Why? Because God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So our prayers must not only be personal. They must not only be national. They must be global in nature. And we are a church family that wants and desires to pray for all people, but we all have to ask ourselves the question, is this what we do? Is this how we pray? Is this what we offer up to the Lord? Do we pray for all people? Do we pray for the suffering in Ukraine? Do we pray for the sons of Russia who have been lost, for the fatherless in South Africa, for the Uyghur people in China? For the victims of human trafficking in India and Iran and Venezuela and here in the United States. For the, for the people of Lebanon and Pakistan and Afghanistan and Syria who struggle to get access to something as basic as water. For those in Yemen and the Central African Republic who struggle to get access to something as basic as food. For the persecuted Christians serving the cause of Christ in Africa, in the Middle East and over in Asia. For the 42% of the world that live in places where there are no Christians, no missionaries, no churches to share the gospel, that's over 3 billion people and 7,000 people groups without access to the truth of Jesus Christ, the only truth that will save their soul for eternity. Do we get stirred by the reality of our world? 
Do we get moved by our commission and our purpose and our driving passion, our cause, that it is to make disciples, Matthew 28, of all nations? A.B. Simpson was the founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and he was known to wake up in the morning, and his team would often find him in his study with his arms wrapped around a globe, weeping in prayer. Does it even cross our minds? I'm going to be honest. I, I struggled thinking about this message this week. I was here last Sunday. If you missed it, you need to go online and check out the message. Pastor Chris delivered a fantastic sermon. I was so moved by it. And I was uh, sitting up here with my family and I was talking about it afterwards with them. It was powerful. It was hope-filled. It was passionate. It was about the gospel and it hit all of us, I know, very deeply. And yet, yet I was thinking about that as I was preparing as we move into chapter two and into the instructions that Paul gives Timothy for the church as the church is gathered. And the two major things we're talking about today, first is prayer. And I'm thinking, how do you get the church fired up about prayer? Because the truth is, I've been a pastor 20 years. I don't see it that often, if I'm being honest. It's like, how do we get our hearts moved by prayer? It's kind of one of those topics where it's like when you say, hey, this is what prayer is, and this is what we ought to do. And everybody's like, yeah, that's good. Then we leave, we go to lunch, and we carry on in our rhythms where prayer is barely a part of it. And we've fallen out of that habit. And then the other topic, it's like global evangelism, praying for all people that all would come to the saving knowledge of Christ. And it's like in our individualistic, consumeristic, narcissistic culture, it's like trying to get us to think outside of our little bubble as people within this, within this radical individualized society. It's like sometimes it's like, yeah, I know there's all those folks out here, but because it doesn't really impact this right here, eh, it's, you know... It's not going to move me much. And yet the word of God is just pleading with us. This is our call. This is our passion. This is what we ought to get on our knees about every single time we get together. Do we pray for all people? We have come to a place, we have to come to a place of realizing, just like the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, it is the whole business of the whole church to preach the whole gospel to the whole world. Where does that start? With prayer. What else should the church pray for? And Paul moves from the general to the specific. And maybe the group he talks about next will surprise you. Maybe it's not what you anticipate. He's, he gives this global vision and then he narrows in on one simple segment of society. And when we come to the segment, you might be thinking, man, I, I don't know if I, I'm going to love this part of the sermon. Well, the truth is, it, it, this is what we do at Woodside Bible Church. We just take the word and we go through it verse by verse, word by word, and we talk about what it is that God is communicating. And so what does he have next? The next group, he goes from global to specifically asking that the church pray for government leaders. Verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, maybe praying for kings doesn't sound all that unusual to you, but consider the context in the first century when Paul penned this letter for Timothy. The Caesar at the time was the emperor Nero. 
And if you know much about history, specifically church history, then you will know that Caesar, Emperor Nero, he was the one who started the first systematic state-sponsored persecution of Christians. They viewed them as worthless in so many ways. The Christians who refused to offer sacrifices to Romans, uh, the Roman culture's pantheon of gods, they had all these gods. They borrowed them from the Greeks and then they changed their names and then they set up all the temples and everybody as part of the empire was uh, required to offer some kind of sacrifice and some type of worship to these pantheon, uh, to, to some of these gods within their pantheon. And as they're doing all of that, the Christians say, no, no, we're, we're not going to respond to that type of idolatry. And so what happens to them, the Christians who refuse to offer sacrifices under Emperor Nero's leadership were dressed up in animal skins and torn to death by dogs. Some were crucified. Some were burned alive. A few were given a faster, more civilized death. They were beheaded. Does Paul say... Pray God annihilates Nero. If it was us in our culture and the president was doing these types of acts against Christian, Christians and, and crucifying them and burning them alive, what would be our prayer? And yet, Paul, this is so convicting. Paul says, pray for the king that you suffer under. Pray for the leader you don't agree with. Pray for the ruler that you can't stand. The application is obvious. Pray for the president, regardless of what you think of his politics and policies. Whoever it is that is sitting in that seat at the time, love him by praying for him. Pray for the vice president. Pray for our governor. Pray for our senators. Pray for our representatives. And don't stop there. We should pray for Vladimir Putin. We should pray for Justin Trudeau. We should pray for Xi Jinping. We should pray for Vladimir Zelensky. We should pray for Ali Khamenei. We should pray for our leaders, the leaders around the world. Why them specifically? Well, because we're called to live under their authority when their leadership is good and allows us to follow Christ, Romans 13. And at other times... At the same time, we're called to obey God rather than man. Acts chapter 5, when their leadership, when men's leadership is opposed to the purposes of God, even if that leads to persecution. And we are also bound by the words of Jesus who says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. So we are to pray for their leadership. We're to pray for their souls because this is God's will for us. It is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, because God desires salvation for all does not mean that all will be saved. This passage is not supporting what's called universalism, that everybody will be saved. No, salvation is by God's grace through faith alone in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's our response to what Jesus has done. This passage is supporting God's love for all people, even though not all people will receive it. So the rest of verse two, Paul writes that we pray them, uh, for them so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, what this doesn't mean is we pray for our leaders, our government leaders, so that we will live in peace, so that we will be comfortable and live out the American dream. That's not what he's saying. 
He's saying, I want you to pray for peace because as you pray for peace, that creates space for you to live live the life of godliness and holiness, a life of both respect that's also respectable. And as you live out that life freely in the presence of others, they will see your life, see your good deeds, hear your proclamation of Christ and come to know Jesus for who he is. That's why we pray for peace. Not for our own comfort, but for the advancement of the gospel. So, so that through our lives of freedom, we can actually see the church flourish. We can see the gospel move forward. And so this is why we pray. Again, the point is the gospel, that Jesus died for all. God, our Savior, desires that all would come to faith. His heart is for every rotten sinner on this planet that he deeply loves, which includes every single one of us. Now think about it. If prayer is a conversation with God where our hearts become aligned with his, that's what prayer is doing. It's aligning our hearts with God's heart. Then think about it. Is it possible to pray with a heart full of hatred and cynicism? I'm convinced that one of the reasons that Christians have the reputation of hatred and cynicism towards leaders is not simply because we disagree with them. It's because our hearts have not been softened for them through prayer. And I'm preaching to myself. I've been doing it all week. I'm just thinking to myself, man, my heart's not soft towards this person. My heart's not soft towards that person. My heart's not soft towards my spouse. My heart's not soft towards my kids. My heart's not soft towards this group of people here and this group of people there. And then I was so convicted just thinking, is it because I haven't prayed for them? John Chrysostom, the early church father said, no one can feel hatred towards those for whom he prays. You can't despise someone you pray for if you're praying for the salvation of their soul. So I might be really frustrated with my teenager, but that frustration softens when I pray for them. I might be at the end of my patience, but that impatience softens when I pray for them. Prayer replaces hostility with compassion. Prayer replaces anger with deeper understanding. Prayer replaces resentment with a desire for restoration. Prayer moves our heart to love because prayer is a move towards our heavenly father who is love. What should the church pray for? We pray for all people. We pray for government leaders. And very briefly, a third point, we pray that the gospel would advance. We've already been talking about it. Look at verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony giving at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So in the first century, like we've talked about, people believed and worshipped the whole pantheon of gods. People still do today. The idol just might not look like a statue But there is only one God and only one gospel and only one mediator between God and humanity. That is Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the only one who can reconcile God and you. That's it. Jesus is the only one who can restore the relationship between God and ourselves. This is the exclusive claim of the gospel. 
that there is no other way, no other person, no other Christ, no other Savior, no other, uh, there, there's no other Messiah. There's, there's only one. It's what Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's the exclusivity of salvation through Christ. But while that's the exclusive claim of the gospel, the inclusive invitation is that it's available for everybody. And it's our responsibility, regardless of person, to pray for the salvation of all. And so this is what we find within the text itself. We find that God has given this one mediator, and he's ransomed us. So in the first century world, a ransom would be money paid to a slave owner in order to set the slave free. And the gospel makes it clear that we are all slaves to sin And through God's initiative, through his action, through Jesus giving himself, we are all offered freedom through faith, salvation through faith. And so a simple question, are you free? Are you forgiven? Are you saved? Are you redeemed in Jesus Christ through faith? And if you haven't prayed for that salvation, that first prayer will change your eternity. And I know there are some here online and some here in this room that need to start there. Simply acknowledging that you are in need of rescue and that Jesus alone has bought your salvation through his sacrifice. And if you've tasted the goodness of that salvation, if you're passionate about the gospel, then you know why every time we get together, every time we gather, every time we preach, every time we sing, every Sunday service, we pray that this gospel would move forward through our words and through our lives. Now, Paul, it says here, he knew his purpose. He was called to preach, not just to the Jews, but the Gentiles. That's everybody else. And the truth is, the same calling is ours as well. We have the same calling to preach this good news to the world. I'm convinced that so much of what God has done in this place at Woodside Bible Church, since 1955, by the way, I mean, since 1955, if you think about, this is just one local lighthouse for the gospel. If you think about this one local ministry, diligently, faithfully proclaiming and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ since 1955, the number of lives that have been transformed, thousands. The global impact is beyond anything we could probably imagine sitting here this morning. But I am also just as surely convinced that the reason why God has used this place to advance his kingdom is because thousands and thousands and thousands of prayers have been offered up to him by this church. If we want to see God continue to move, we have to be people of prayer. Just on the other side of that wall back there. You can all turn around for a second right now. It says I'm a minute over my time and I'm wrapping up. So minute seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. Right on the other side of that wall. Yeah. Now you know that every pastor has that clock in front of us every Sunday. And so right on the other side of that wall is a room of prayer. And it's been my prayer, my hope. I share this with all of our campus pastors. That's part of my role is to help lead them that every campus would have a prayer room. And this one just so happens to be right, actually literally within this room. It's just kind of walled off. But that while every worship service is happening and the gospel is being presented, there would be men and women on their knees passionately praying that God's spirit would move. That there's people right on the other side of that wall praying that you would hear from God today. And God answers those prayers. 
He answers the prayers of his people. And that's why we want to start this week in prayer. When you think about people who are great for the world, think about this quote from S.D. Gordon as I close. He wrote a classic little devotional in the early 1900s called Quiet Talks on Prayer. He said, the great people of the earth today are the people who pray. I do not mean those who talk about prayer, nor those who say they believe in prayer, nor yet those who can explain about prayer, but I mean these people who take time and pray. They have not time. It must be taken from something else. This is, something else is important, very important, and pressing, but still less important and less pressing than prayer. If we want to be great in the kingdom of God, if we want to see him move, let us plead with him through prayer. This Friday, we're going to close our week of prayer with a night of prayer and worship. We had it last year. And again, if I'm just being fully transparent and honest with you today, I hope you give me the grace to do that uh, as your brother and your friend. Uh, Last year, it was a powerful time. I was so moved being here last year. And we prayed and we sang and we prayed and we sang and it was powerful. My kids were present. It was an amazing night. And yet, when I looked across the room, there was maybe this bottom section here that was mostly full. There was maybe about 600 folks that came. And I was thinking that the number of people that call Woodside, one of our locations, their church home, it's well over 15,000 people. And I was just thinking, what, what else do we have to do I'm going to ask you, join us 7 to 8.30 this Friday. It's not that much time, to be honest. I think we could use more. But would you come? And let me ask a simple question. Do you have something? I know we all have our calendars, and maybe you have uh, arrangements that you can't get out of, and there's responsibilities. But if you don't, do you have something else that's more important, more pressing, something better to do? Let's be people of prayer. And here's the thing. When we pray, God responds. So Father, we want to offer our prayers to you. We want to be a people of prayer. Father, we want to passionately plead with you for our lives and what's happening within our families and our homes and our neighborhoods and our networks. But together, corporately, we also want to lift up everything we can before your throne. And we can come before your throne. It's a throne of grace. So even, Father, we know this, that if we've been distant from you, if we've shut off some communication, if we've gotten out of this habit, out of this rhythm, you are not abandoning us. You didn't turn your face away from your own. You are right now receptive, postured, Leaning in on your own people with a smile on your face, awaiting for them to seek you, to speak with you, to cry out to you. So Father, we don't need to think that we're coming before the throne rejected in Jesus Christ. It is called the throne of grace. So we don't need to leave this place defeated. We can leave this place convicted, but also full of life full of hope, knowing that a conversation with you is just beginning, bringing us into a new season of life. And for every person who has yet to receive Jesus, I pray in these moments they would have the courage to pray, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I claim you as my own. I need your rescue. You are my savior. Change my life. 
And for all who have, Father, bring revival. Awaken our hearts to you, to your heart for us, for your heart for the world, for all the things that you need to communicate to each of us here this morning. Just awaken us. Rise us, wake us from our slumber. Father, help us to be passionate about the things that you care about and help us to respond in obedience. It's in Jesus' powerful name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.